Hey everyone, you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast and I'm your host, Rick Cole. We come to you each week from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, bringing you all the big news stories in the hockey and sporting worlds from 50 years ago this week. This time around, we're in the week of March 30th to April 5th, 1970, and what a week it was. Now, our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support has been crucial to our research. They enable us to access all the newspapers in the hockey land of the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. They make some outstanding craft beers, many of which are from recipes crafted by the town's first brewery in the late 1800s. Presently, they have a beer named Maple Lager, which is made from one of those recipes from way back when, and it's great. They also serve the best pub food around with delicious gourmet burger and pizza specials each week created by the amazing team in their kitchen. If you're in the Niagara region, you have to get a burger and a beer at the break wall. Now, last week's uh, show, we had a few uh, news items we discussed. We talked about a Czech player named Yaroslav Jurek making his debut for the St. Louis Blues. He was the first player allowed to play in a North American professional league from a communist country. We were talking about the crazy playoff race that had 10 of the 12 NHL teams still in the running for postseason berths. And we had another rumor of a possible move by the California Seals, this time all the way across the continent to Long Island, New York. In this week's show, we'll go on with that crazy playoff rate race as we are in the final week of the 1969-70 season. And we've got all the details for you and a crazy, crazy finish. We'll talk about a veteran NHL goalie wrestling with the decision of whether he should finally don a face mask at this late stage in his career. And we'll learn how the great Gordie Howe was wanting to celebrate his 42nd birthday. Spoiler there, exactly how you think a hockey player would mark such an occasion. And of course, we have tons more news as the NHL teams fully engaged in that stretch run with just a few games remaining and we'll see how it all unfolds. We want to start this week by hope wishing everyone all the best that we can. We hope you're all staying safe, staying well, and being as happy as you can, not going too stir-crazy, being cooped up. We try and get out for a walk or a bicycle ride every day when we can. Now that the weather's getting a little better here in Niagara, it's a little easier to do that. But we practice safe social distancing, uh, but I still like my fresh air. Uh, we have a really busy show this week as we look in depth at this last week of the NHL season from 69-70. I remember as a 19-year-old hockey nut, just how crazy this playoff race looked as we tried to figure out all the permutations that existed and how ties might be broken. 
as it unfolded, we never believed, we couldn't even have guessed how the final night of the season would unfold. I remember listening to my shortwave radio. My dad built that for me when I was in my teens so I could pick up radio stations from all over the world and all over the continent. And I was trying to catch news of what was happening on the broadcast that came across from there. The uh, Voice of America and the Armed Forces Radio Network in the States often carried games that we couldn't get on the AM radio and they were good to listen to. Now on that final night, As results trickled in, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The week began innocently enough with interviews with Tim Horton, now of the fifth place New York Rangers in the Toronto Papers. And he also, uh, we had Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times talking about the Rangers trying to revive a feeling of togetherness amongst the players, a feeling that was uh, prevalent through the team early in the season, but when they fell on hard times, things just didn't seem to be going uh, very smoothly. There was an overwhelming feeling on the Rangers of being on a sinking ship without any type of rescue in sight. The arrival of Tim Horton helped a little bit. It showed the players that management was serious about adding what talent they could at the trade deadline to get the team going again, but it really, really uh, wasn't going very well. The Rangers did get some external motivation when in a nationally televised interview on the weekend on the CBS Game of the Week, Boston's Derek Sanderson proclaimed, as only he could, that the Rangers were dead. As of Monday of the week, the Blackhawks and Bruins were tied for first place in the Eastern Division, each with 95 points, but the Hawks gained the tiebreaker between the two with five more wins than Boston. Very doubtful that the Bruins could, well, they just couldn't mathematically match that. So any tie between the two teams would leave the Blackhawks in first place. Montreal Canadiens were in third, five back of the first place teams, and one ahead of the Detroit Red Wings who were in fourth. In fifth spot, still on the outside looking in, and a point back of the Red Wings were the New York Rangers, but the Red Wings had played one fewer game than New York, and they were able to probably make that up. It's going to be a tough road to hoe for the Rangers to make the playoffs. In the Western Division, the Blues were home and cooled out in first place. They were they were so far ahead, no one had any mathematical chance of catching them. Pittsburgh, meanwhile, had taken a four-point lead over the Philadelphia Flyers in the race for second spot, with the Oakland Seals behind the Flyers in fourth, three points in the rear of Philadelphia, and one in front of the fifth-place Minnesota North Stars. The only game on Tuesday saw the North Stars win a contest they absolutely had to have by beating the Kings 5-2. to two. That enabled the North Stars to jump past the Oakland Seals and into fourth place in the Western Division. In that game, Billy Collins scored his 27th and 28 goals for Minnesota. Now, Billy, you'll remember, has a unique clause in his contract where he gets paid $100 for every goal he scored over 10 in a season. Billy's going to have a nice paycheck next time around. The loss for the Los Angeles Kings was 
their 51st of this season, and that, my friends, set an NHL record for most losses by one team in a single season. A busy, busy Wednesday night saw five games on the docket, all with playoff implications. The Rangers went into Toronto and managed to take a 2-1 win from the Maple Leafs at Maple Leaf Gardens in a must-win game if there ever was one for a team like New York. Jean Rattel's goal early in the third period was the game winner for the Rangers. The Pittsburgh Penguins clinched second place in the Western Division by stopping the free-falling Philadelphia Flyers 4-1 in Pittsburgh. The Penguins dominated the game over a mostly listless Philadelphia squad and only the heroics of Flyers netminder Bernie Perron, who made 43 saves, kept the score at least respectable. For a team that had to have this game, the Flyers looked listless, they looked tired, and they looked unmotivated. And they just gave Coach Vic Stasiuk a two-year contract extension. The Oakland Seals got back into fourth place as they tied the St. Louis Blues 2-2 in St. Louis. The Blues, who were heavily criticized for resting key players in games that were important to other teams, iced their A-team on this night, but it was evident they're taking no chances at incurring any injuries at this point in the season. Scotty Bowman, by the way, took great exception for being accused of letting other teams have an easy time against the Blues and said he has every right to rest players who were a bit banged up. One of those players, by the way, was defenseman Al Arbor, who was behind the bench in a couple of the games in which the Blues managed to lose. The Detroit Red Wings took out the Blackhawks by a 5-2 score, giving the Bruins an opening to maybe create a little distance between them and the Blackhawks for first place. But alas, the Bruins could not take advantage as they went into the Montreal Forums and had their butts kicked by a suddenly scoring Montreal Canadiens team. The Habs took this one by a 6-3 to three count and the Bruins looked to be devastated at the end of this game by that score. That Red Wing upset victory in Chicago, by the way, kept them in fourth place, still one ahead of the Rangers. Frank Mahovlich and Pete Stemkowski, a couple of former Toronto Maple Leafs who certainly would have helped the team towards a playoff spot this year, were the stars for the Red Wings against the Blackhawks as they each potted a pair of goals for Detroit. And at Montreal, Big John Beliveau, for one of the few times this season, looked completely like his old self as he manhandled the Bruins in a crucial contest. Big John had two goals and an assist for Canadians in a game that the Bruins, as we mentioned, desperately wanted to win. So that took us to Thursday evening with the Maple Leafs heading down the 401 to visit the Red Wings in Detroit and the St. Louis Blues making the trip to Philadelphia to take on the struggling Flyers. The Wings suddenly found themselves in third place in the East as they downed Toronto 4-2 to 
to move past Montreal. Now they have 93 points, one more than Canadiens. And the Flyers were inexplicably able to score even once on home ice, and they lost to the Blues one to nothing in the spectrum before a very disappointed crowd. Now the reason the Blue the Blues won this game was their goaltender actually dominated, and that was 29-year-old Ernie Wakeley. Most people feel Ernie is in third on the Blues goaltending depth chart, but he uh, stepped up in the last half of the season, and he's been very good for the St. Louis club. So now as the uh, weekend approaches, here's how things shaped up in the NHL standings. And now, boys and girls, stay with me on this and pay attention because as the kids say these days, this stuff's about to get real and it's a little bit complicated. In the Eastern Division, with all teams having two games left to play, Chicago and Boston were still tied at 95 points But with the Hawks having 43 wins to the Bruins 38, any tie-in points there would go to the Blackhawks based on them having more victories. Detroit sat in third spot with 93 points, Montreal fourth with 92, the Rangers in fifth with 90 points, looking like their chances are between slim and none, and as they say, slim might have just left town. The weekend games would see three home-and-home series in the Eastern Division, with Boston playing against Toronto, the Blackhawks against Montreal Canadiens, and the Rangers tangling with the team directly in front of them, Detroit. Who figured this schedule out? This makes for some high drama this weekend for sure about the only thing we know for sure is that the rangers can't finish first or second and to ensure they make the playoffs they have to beat detroit twice according to what each of the writers in the cities are saying about this race in the western division the drama isn't quite as great as on the east there's no home and home games to set things up and the standings aren't quite so so uh, tight. Going into the weekend, St. Louis had a 20-point cushion over the Penguins who had clinched second place. The Flyers sat in third, but they only had one game left to play and that would be on Saturday afternoon against the Minnesota North Stars in Philadelphia. Oakland and Minnesota were tied for fourth, both with 56 points, both with two games remaining to play. But Oakland owns a tiebreaker with 21 wins to Minnesota, having only 17. Now, do you want to know how close things are in this NHL race? Donald Ruck is the NHL vice president, and he consulted a computer on Friday to see if he could gain some insight in how the Eastern Division might shake down because it was so complicated, he couldn't figure it out. Neither could anybody else at the NHL offices. They had the uh, computer run the program that they set up and he came away from the experience even more confused than he was before it started. Don said that the computer told them there are 125 possibilities of various two and three team ties, as well as where teams will finish in the standings. 125 combinations. 
There are 29 different possibilities of a first place tie, 24 variations of a second place deadlock, 22 chances for third, and 16 for fourth. There are even three chances for a three-way tie for first and one chance of a three-way tie for second. Now, Ruck also said that they use a computer to get a fast reading on the Western Division possibilities, but it turns out that that's even more complicated than the East. He said there were over 50 possibilities of ties and various position finishes. He didn't discuss the various tiebreakers that might have to be deployed to determine the final standings. And in hindsight, when we find out what happened, they might have wanted to rethink how they were going to break these ties. So here is how that final crazy weekend unfolded in a finish that will be unlike anything we had ever ever seen to that point and I don't really think we've ever seen anything quite like it since. The only game on Friday evening saw the Seals vault into third place in the Western Division as they took a 4-1 win over the hapless LA Kings with every loss setting an NHL record for losses in a season. The Seals after this game had 58 points same as the Flyers but here's where all those ties that the Flyers had all year and NHL record 24 stalemates. That's where all these ties cost Philly. The Seals' 22 wins were five more than the Flyers who had 17. So if they remain tied, the Seals would get fourth place and the Flyers might be out. Veteran Earl Ingerfield came up big for the Seals in that game with two goals. Earl had missed a lot of time, especially in the last half of the season with injuries. But when the Seals needed him most, he stepped up to the plate and the two goals cinched the win for the Flyers. And that clinched a playoff berth for the Seals. So as Saturday dawned, things in the Eastern Division were, as we mentioned, clear as mud. Boston kept their slim chance at first place in the East alive by doubling the Maple Leafs 4-2 at the Gardens in Toronto. Detroit won the biggest match of the night as they slapped the Rangers 6-2. So that finishes the Rangers for good, right? Well, we were wrong about the Rangers needing to win twice to make the playoffs. Seemed nobody considered all the possibilities after all, strange as it may seem. While Detroit dumped the Rangers 6-2, to the Rangers even felt after that game they were officially dead. But Emil Francis, always on top of things, said, hey boys, not so fast. Montreal ended up losing at the Forum to Chicago by a score of four to one and that suddenly meant that if the Rangers could defeat the Red Wings on Sunday evening by at least five goals on their home ice in Madison Square Garden and if Montreal would somehow lose to the uh, Chicago Blackhawks on Sunday evening at Chicago Stadium the Rangers ludicrous as it may seem could somehow get into the playoffs. That Chicago victory uh, in Montreal clinched second place for the Hawks. It meant Canadians 
could not any longer have a chance for first. And it meant the game against Montreal on Sunday, while Boston played at home against Toronto, would be for first place. In that 4-1 win, it was Chicago's lesser lights that came through with Doug Jarrett, Chico Mackey, Brian Campbell, along with Dennis Hall scoring the goals for the Blackhawks. For the Canadians, it seems all they have to do on Sunday is match whatever the Rangers do. They win, lose, or draw, and don't give up a boatload of goals and hope the Rangers don't score. Seems like a fairly simple task for Canadians. They should feel pretty comfortable about their chances. Well, Saturday was a day that would live in infamy in Philadelphia if you're a Flyers fan. At the Spectrum, the Flyers did the unthinkable. They lost again at home, lost again by a shutout, the worst of shutouts possible on home ice. They lost to the North Stars, one to nothing. And it was old Gump Worsley who stymied the Flyers on this day. Worsley was in goal for Minnesota, and he made 30 saves to blank the Flyers on home ice, in a win that puts the North Stars into the playoffs and incredibly dropped the Flyers from third to fifth spot and out of the playoff race with no games left to play for the Phillies. The North Stars goal was scored by defenseman Barry Gibbs and this itself was just another one of those incredible crazy things that happened on this last weekend of the season. Now, Barry Gibbs is not a high-scoring player. He's a defenseman for the Flyers, a young guy. But he was making a safe play late in the game when he fired a long 80-foot routine shot from center ice that somehow eluded goalie Bernie Perrant. Bernie said he never saw the puck until the last second too late. Bernie said... I saw him with the puck by the boards. Then someone crossed in front of me near the blue line. I moved to my left because I thought a shot might be coming, even from center ice, but I went to the left and he aimed it to the right. I saw it just as it was going by me. Now, Bernie has always been a stand-up guy. I gave him credit for standing at the microphone and talking to reporters after the game. The epic collapse for the Flyers featured six straight losses on Spectrum Ice, including the final two games by one nothing scores. You can't blame the goaltending for the Flyers' collapse. There is enough blame to go around in other areas for sure. So we get to the Sunday games, the final evening of the regular National Hockey League season. Boston was at home to Toronto with the Bruins' only shot at first place being a win over the Leafs and a loss by the Blackhawks to Montreal, who were playing at Chicago Stadium. The Blackhawks weren't about to lose at home, but the Canadians weren't about to miss the playoffs. Something had to give. Now the Rangers were to play the Red Wings at Madison Square Garden and the Wings had now clinched their third place standing. They were unable to move into second and they didn't have to worry about dropping out of the playoffs or even to fourth place. So the Red Wings, like the Blues, 
were home and cooled out. That would likely be a huge advantage for the Rangers in their quest to somehow defy the odds and get past Montreal. Now, the only Western Division game this evening would see the North Stars visit Pittsburgh in a game that would determine who would finish third in the Western Division. So we'll start with the simple stuff first, I guess. At Pittsburgh, the North Stars cruised to a 5-1 win over the Penguins, who didn't really have much to play for anyway, and that gave the North Stars a final total of 60 points, two more than fourth-placed Oakland. Not sure if the Stars really wanted that outcome. They claim that they did. But by finishing third, it means that Minnesota would have to play the first place St. Louis Blues in round one, while the Oakland Seals would take on second place Pittsburgh. At Boston, the Bruins did what they had to do, although it wasn't easy, against a surprisingly motivated Toronto Maple Leaf team. The Bruins took a hard-fought 3-1 win over the Leafs, and uh, that uh, gave them a chance at second place. Uh, They had to depend on Montreal to defeat the Blackhawks in Chicago in order to enable the Boston team to claim, claim first. That eventuality, as we would learn, did not take place. Now remember, the Bruins played at an earlier, much earlier start time than the Chicago game, so they would be able to sit back and listen to hear how things would go. I wonder what they were thinking as they got the reports from Chicago, and you'll see what I mean. Now, the Detroit-New York game also started earlier than the one in Chicago, and the Rangers knew they'd have to win this game by at least five goals to even have a chance to make the postseason. So Rangers coach Emil Francis had one thing in mind. Get a lead early, score as many goals as is humanly possible in the allotted 60 minutes of playing time. Just make sure they won. Then make sure they won by at least five. Well, at least they had to get five goals to beat Montreal. This wasn't rocket science for the Rangers. Wasn't rocket science for Emil Francis. It was just the only way to have a chance. If Montreal were to lose and the Rangers win... Both teams would have the same number of points, same number of wins. The tiebreaker would then be the team that had scored the most goals over the course of the season. That would be the only way the Rangers could get past Montreal. They'd have to score five more goals than whatever the Canadians could get on this night, and that would give them the edge. I wouldn't bet any time that any team would score five more goals than the Canadians would on any given night. But that's what the Rangers actually were up against. If those uh, totals were identical, if the Rangers and Canadians were to finish with an identical number of goals for, what was the next fighting factor? Well, that would be goals against. And the Rangers had the edge in that department going into the game with two fewer. So it was their goal total and a win that really mattered on this one. Well, at Madison Square Garden, there was a raucous sellout crowd and the Rangers were up for this one and they came out flying and put on one of the greatest offensive performances in New York Ranger history. That's right, in their history. They poured a team record 65 shots at Detroit Red Wings goalie Roger Crozier in a game that ended 
in a 9-5 victory for the Rangers. The Red Wings gave it basically a decent shot. They were studiously avoiding situations, however, that could lead to injuries for any of their players. They managed only 22 shots at Ranger goalie Eddie Jockerman, although the goal total of five was flattering. With 3.38 left to play in the game, the Rangers were leading 9-3. Leading 9-3, and Emil Francis, Rangers GM coach, employed an unheard-of strategy he removed goalie Eddie Jockerman from the Ranger goal in favor of an extra attacker. That's six attackers just to ensure that Montreal could never match the Rangers goal total that they had already scored nine. Now that ploy didn't work uh, for Francis. His club was unable to score with that extra skater over the final 338 of play. But as we learn later, it didn't matter. The Red Wings, on the other hand, scored two meaningless goals into the empty New York goal to make the final score 9-5, which says a little more complimentary than the 9-3 count. Now Stan Fischler, the hockey writer from New York, in another one of those special to the Toronto Star stories on Monday morning, questioned whether the Red Wings even wanted to win the game at all, and although he didn't come right out and say it, he sort of made it sound like they might have thrown the game. Here's what Fischler had to say in the special to the star story. He said that uh, the Red Wings had put forth a totally inept effort and he cited three main points. He said the manager coach Sid Abel used Gordie Howe for only three shifts in the first two periods and he limited his use of Frank Mahovlich. Stan doesn't mention how many shifts Gordy played in the third. He started goalie Roger Crozier rather than hot Roy Edwards, and midway in the game, Edwards vacated the Detroit bench. Well, if you read the Detroit papers, they were worried that Edwards wouldn't be able to start Sunday because he was ill, suffering from the effects of the flu. That was before this game even started. And then Abel opened the key game, with the mediocre starting line of Gary Crotto, Al Carlander, and Ron Harris on the forward line, and Harris normally a defenseman. And that's not true either. Ron Harris took a good number of shifts on left wing during this and other seasons in his NHL career. It may have been a uh, weaker line, although it's a very good defensive line. Crotto and Harris, good defensive players, but the Rangers did manage to score within 36 seconds of the opening faceoff. Now, Sid Abel argued that there were essential reasons for the strategy that he followed. It appeared to give the Rangers a solid advantage over the Montreal Canadiens, but he said, I wanted to rest several of my players, How Bobby Bond, Carl Brewer, Alex Delvecchio, all senior citizens in the NHL, and Abel said, it's my prerogative to do so. I can rest players when I want. And he rested his players, and at that point, he rested his case. So that left all the drama to unfold in Chicago. All Canadians had to do was defeat Chicago, or at least score enough goals to keep the Rangers from passing their season total in that department if they were to lose the game. Well... The drama turned to farce before it was all over. 
Canadians took a one nothing lead halfway through the first period, but even then it was abundantly clear that Hawks rookie goalie Tony Esposito had come on this night to play the game. He made numerous big stops on Frank Mahovlich, Jean Beliveau, and others before Chicago got goals from Jimmy Pappen and Pitt Martin to take the lead by the end of the first period. In the middle stands of the team swapped goals, each scoring once, setting up the bizarre third period that still is talked about today 50 years later. Pitt Martin scored a couple of quick goals to put Chicago ahead 5-2 by the 10:44 mark of the final frame. It was at that point that Montreal coach Claude Ruel knowing that the Rangers now had run up the score against the Red Wings in New York, he removed goalie Rogi Vashon, trailing by three goals in favor of an extra attacker with over half a period to play. Claude knew full well it didn't matter how badly his team lost as long as he would be able to knock in three more goals to surpass the Ranger total. You couldn't blame Claude for trying, but the move completely backfired and turned the game into nothing more than a bad pod hockey contest. Chicago scored five times into the unguarded Montreal cage, and the Habs were unable to add even one goal to their total to make the final score an embarrassing 10-2 count, which of course added only to the embarrassment of the Montreal Canadiens, who for the first time in 22 years would not take part in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And even worse for a kid like me, it was the first time that anyone could remember that no Canadian team would be in the postseason. While as a person who, when the Maple Leafs weren't playing, didn't care who won as long as Montreal lost, I was happy to see the Habs go down in disgrace, but it was still a bitter pill to swallow having to listen to the likes of Bill Mazur on the CBS games take apparent delight in all those American teams competing for the Stanley Cup while Canadian teams had to watch on the sidelines. Even though Bill seemed to mostly forget that all of those teams were almost completely staffed by Canadian hockey players and in the immediate aftermath of this crazy unprecedented finish hockey writers in virtually every city in the league called for an amendment to the nhl rules for tie breaking to avoid final games taking on the aura of a bush league backwoods contest So we move on now to the rest of the hockey news from this last week of the NHL season. We really can't top anything uh, that came about in the other uh, news departments with that crazy finish. As most hockey fans know, uh, it was March 31st this week, marked the birthday of hockey's greatest player, at least to this point in history, as Gordie Howe turned 42 years old. Gordy, in his customary manner, wished only that the milestone would pass with little or no fanfare, but when you're the best there is, no matter what your occupation, it's rare that that happens. Gordy was asked how he's going to celebrate uh, the birthday, and his answer was typical of just about any Canadian hockey player. 
Maybe I'll have a piece of birthday cake and a beer. There was no shortage of birthday cake at the Detroit Olympia that day. About a half dozen birthday cakes arrived at the rink sent by well-wishers wanting to pay their respects to hockey's greatest warrior. Gordy talked about, albeit reluctantly, about the future. He said he was likely to play another year, probably, but that he could even last two more years, but he was really leaving it open. He didn't even discount the possibility that this, the 1969-70 season, could be his last. Gordy wasn't given any secrets away. Now, Gordy, despite 24 seasons in the big league, he showed he still has a sense of humor uh, just recently. In a March 15th game against the Red Wings, Bobby Orr registered his 100th point of the season. Gordy skated over to Bobby after the puck had gone in the net and quipped to him that uh, that was a nice point, Bobby, but it's a hell of a way to break up a good hockey game. I think Gordy knew, however, that Bobby might just be the man who could wrest the title of best of them all from Gordy someday. Les Bigley is soon to be 34 years old, and he is a goaltender in the National Hockey League for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He's been around professional hockey since 1955-56, and Les has seen enormous change in the game and the way it's played. But there's one change that Les has resisted as he continues his big league career. It's now the norm for goaltenders at every level of hockey to wear the face mask, but Les, despite numerous injuries, including another one this week, has refused to don the facial protection. Now, Les isn't completely against the idea of trying the mask in games. He told the Pittsburgh Press this week, every time I get hit in the face, I get closer to wearing a mask. I keep saying to myself, if I get hit again, I'll wear it. But still, as the season winds down, Les Binkley stands barefaced in the Pittsburgh goal. Now, last Sunday night against the St. Louis Blues, Les took a blast by Billy McCurry of the Blues from just 20 feet out, square in the jaw. It hit him so hard, it caused his contact lenses to pop out. Les said he never saw the shot until it was a foot from his face. He said, I saw him wind up and shoot but I actually never saw the puck. Now Les went down as if he were hit by a sniper. He was carried off the ice via stretcher and taken to the dressing room, barely even conscious. By some miracle, the puck had hit him on the flat side rather than on edge, which is the only thing that saved him from serious injury or even worse. He needed no stitches, at least on the outside, but the attending doctor told him that the inside of his mouth looked like hamburger. Binkley lost one tooth this time and he had two others loosened. The Penguins team Dennis moved the loosened and displaced teeth back into place, Les said, way easier than he thought it would be. Now Les plans on being back between the pipes for the Penguins in their next game. He hasn't said whether he'll put the mask on. As for the mask that Les has, Les says he wears it even in practice now, even when he's just doing skating drills, uh, just about from the time he leaves the dressing room until the workout's over. He's trying a new face, uh, facial mask now. It's the uh, same model that's used by his netminding partner, Al Smith, and also by Tony Esposito and Jacques Plante. 
He says this mask seems to fit better, and although the eye holes are smaller than others, he's tried, the mask seems to be tighter to the face and around the eyes and avoiding much better vision, especially at the feet. Now, Penguins coach Red Kelly was asked if he'd order Binkley to don a mask, especially after last week, and in consideration that Les seems to have found one he likes. Red says he's leaving the decision up to his goalkeeper. Kelly said it's all up to him. As far as I can see, masks haven't yet been perfected. How are the Buffalo Sabres doing with all that uproar over the cost of the renovations to Memorial Auditorium? You may remember that the National Hockey League ordered the Sabres to play in Memorial Auditorium, which is in downtown Buffalo, instead of occupying a new arena to be constructed in conjunction with the new football baseball stadium in the suburbs. In order to make the odds suitable for NHL hockey, the seating capacity had to be increased from about 9,800 to 15,000. And they were going to do that by raising the roof of the arena a full 22 feet and adding a balcony and some private boxes. The cost of this project was estimated to be about $6.2 million and the Buffalo Common Council was all in favor of it. Well, Tenders were put out and now it looks like the cost is going to be more like between 8 and 9 million, closer to 9 more likely. The Buffalo City Council's not happy about this and there was even talk that the entire project could be scuttled, leaving the Sabres without a home that would meet the approval of the NHL. Well, the City Common Council finally did approve the expansion, but the vote was won by the narrowest of margin. Now, work to modify the odd is slated to begin on May 1st, and it's really difficult to see how they can compete with what appears to be a massive renovation by the beginning of October. Now, council got around the huge jump in cost uh, by issuing uh, another bond, uh, a bond issue of $2.5 million, and that's supposed to make up the shortfall from the previously approved amount. Now, the Sabres did settle on their ticket prices, the top prices, the gold boxes and red seats, were going to cost $6.60 a game. The Blues, and that's where the group I belong to, bought our season tickets. They were $5.50 each. The Grays came in at $4. And when the balcony is completed, all those seats will be a cool $3 a game. The Sabres already at this point had $5,000. Ticket requests, including ours, 60% of the requests for season tickets came from the Niagara Peninsula and other nearby Ontario centers like Hamilton and Kitchener. And we have a couple of other quick news notes uh, from the week. An April Fool's gag in Montreal radio station really backfired. The Montreal station put out a bulletin claiming that the Canadians had traded Rogie Vashon, J.C. Tremblay, and Yvonne Cornway to the Chicago Blackhawks for Pitt Martin and Stan Makita and Tony Esposito. Well, immediately, the Canadian switchboard and the radio station switchboard lit up like Christmas trees as fans protested. But what happened was another local radio station picked up the story and they broadcast it as well, compounding the damage. Uh, CJAD 
actually let the story run for an hour before they finally admitted it was a, an April Fool's prank. But by that time, it was too late. The non-existent cat was out of the bag. Uh, it's really funny that uh, the knowledgeable Montreal hockey public could be fooled in this way, especially when most of them would know that the NHL trade deadline was three weeks ago. Minnesota North Stars President Walter Bush was asked this week if consideration was being given to having goalie Gump Worsley become the North Stars coach next season. Walter Bush shot that down very quickly, saying that the club had acquired the Gumper for the sole purposes of providing NHL goalkeeping for the team, and he said there were no other considerations due to Montreal as a result of the trade that brought Worsley to Minnesota, except for cold hard cash well we'll watch the nhl meetings in june and see if there are any other deals that were kind of fishy like the one in the 1967 expansion draft between the habs and the stars just remember we're talking about this now let's see what happens and one more note from the week, Leo Monahan writes in the Sporting News this week that Guy Trottier of the American Hockey League Buffalo Bisons is likely one of the players going from the New York Rangers to the Toronto Maple Leafs to complete the Tim Horton trade. The others going to the Leafs, according to Leo, although he didn't know for sure, he thought it would probably be defenseman Mike Robitaille and young center Don Luce. So everyone, that's our show for this week, the final one of the 1969-70 season. And what do we learn this time around? Well, we saw the NHL finish the 69-70 season was as wild and unbelievable as could possibly be. And surprising things happened that left even the Montreal Canadiens out of the playoffs. We learned the Penguins goalie Les Binkley is strongly considering the use of a face mask with very good reason. And we learned that the Buffalo Common Council managed to find a way to approve the much more expensive than anticipated expansion of Memorial Auditorium for the new Buffalo Sabres. We also found out how much the seats would cost. Now, some of the stories we're working on next week, we'll talk about the beginning of the 1970 Stanley Cup playoffs. Who will host Lord Stanley's legendary mug this spring? We'll have lots of talk about the NHL changing the tie-breaking rules to avoid the mess that happened on the final night of the 69-70 season. And we're going to talk a little bit about Ron Ellis of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who was unsure of his hockey future despite having had his best season. Please join us again next week for another 50-year trip back in time to 1970. The 50 Years Ago at Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we can't thank him enough for all his hard work. He's what makes this sound even somewhat professional. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music, and if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, they put on a great high-energy show. 
If the Calgary Stampede manages to go this summer, they're going to be playing out there. Other other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. As our research, as we've said, come from files at the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at our sponsor, newspapers.com. Don't forget to give a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole. Each week, Andy and a special guest engage in great conversation, and they also collaborate on writing a song, which they perform at the end of each show. Those songs from the first season have just been released, and if you look up the podcast, you'll be able to find where to locate those songs. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and of course, you can get us at your favorite podcast app. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into our show. We're really having a lot of fun bringing this to you each and every week. The 69-70 season was an interesting one, and we can't wait now to get into the playoffs and then the postseason where we have some very interesting projects planned if circumstances allow us to bring them. Thanks again, everyone. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the-